introduction. It's getting to be the end of March. Uh, so that means that basketball fatigue has settled in at the Barbie household. Um, so just even a day into the men's college basketball tournament, you know, basketball's on from like noon until midnight. Uh, Kate asked me, how long does this last? And I said, isn't it great? It lasts another three weeks. And it got me thinking how kids around the world, they'll dribble and shoot their basketballs in their driveway and in parking lots. And as they do it, they mimic their favorite players. They reenact the best moments. And it made me think about how I did this growing up. Uh, my neighbors and I would all come to uh, my house and in our driveway, and we would lower the basketball hoop to maybe like seven feet. And all of a sudden, a few pudgy white kids were like Michael Jordan and LeBron James. So we could dunk, and we could hit every shot. We could make all the buzzer beaters. And we thought we are definitely on the fast track to the NBA. Now, it's one thing to be a good basketball player with a lowered basket, a non-existent opposition, and with no stakes on the line. It is quite another thing to be a good basketball player with a tall basket, an elite opposition, and in the championship game. In 1 Peter, Peter writes to real Christians who live real life in the real world. They don't play a pretend game with an easy target and no opposition. They want to live for God in real life and the opposition is mounting. So how do they do it? How do weak and weary Christians live for God in a strong and scary world? That's what we'll look at today from 1 Peter So follow along with me as I read from 1 Peter 1, verses 13 to 21. After I read this, I'll say this is God's word. If you agree that this is God's gift to us, would you join me to thank God and say, thanks be to God. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. So how do weak and weary Christians live for God in a strong and scary world? Well, if I had to answer that question from this passage with just one word, it would be grace. If I had to answer that question with just one sentence, It would be the grace of God empowers our hope in God, our obedience to God, and our pursuit of God. 
Peter organizes this, this section of his letter around three different commands. You might have noticed them as we read. The first command comes in verse 13. He says to set your hope fully. The second command comes in verse 15. He says to be holy in all your conduct. And the third command comes in verse 17. He says to conduct yourselves with fear. Three commands. So Christian, if you ever wonder what God wants out of you for your life, there's a lot to wonder, but you can at least start here. This is what he wants for you. But as I was considering these, this section this week, I thought, about, uh, I thought about all these commands and I thought we are just an impatient people, right? We're, we're people of microwaves. We're people of high-speed internet. Like if my internet doesn't work immediately on my phone, I get upset. <laughs> we are people who watch eight-minute TED Talks about life. So we look at these commands, and if you and I were writing this, we would just focus on what these commands mean. We would say, Peter, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. I got things to do. I got places to be. No, but may I remind you, your job is to sit under the Bible, not to stand over it. And Peter stresses not just what you're to do, he stresses how you're able to do it. And the answer of how you're able to do it might surprise you. It all boils down to grace. And I want you to see that from the very beginning of this section. I want you to look at the very first word of verse 13. It's the word therefore. Now, you might have heard me say this. You might have heard someone else say this. Whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, you should ask, what's it there for? Right? It always points us back. It points us back really to all of 1 Peter 1 verses 3 through 12. Verses 3 through 12 are actually one long sentence in the original language. This is Peter's way of giving God elaborate praise for his merciful salvation. That's what we've seen over the last couple weeks in 1 Peter. Over the last couple weeks, we've seen the sweetness of this merciful salvation. We've seen how God the Father calls us to salvation, how God the Son achieves our salvation, how God the Spirit applies our salvation. We've seen how this merciful salvation extends to our past, our present, and our future. That we have been forgiven, that we are being guarded, and we will be given the inheritance Christ has won for us. So when you look at that word, therefore, in verse 13, think of it as Peter saying, in light of all that I just said, and then he goes on. Now, this word, therefore, before we brush by it, it reminds you of a fundamental concept to Christianity. Are you ready for it? Here it is. The indicative comes before the imperative. Now, you might hear that. You say, Pastor Steve, I thought we were done with eighth grade English class last week. I'm sorry, we're not done yet. Indicative is a statement of fact, a reality. Imperative is a command. So Peter has set up his letter in such a way that the reality comes before the command. 
so that the indicative comes before the imperative. Another way to put this, Peter has set up his letter in such a way so that the grace of God comes before the commands from God. Are you tracking with me now? So that what God has done is the basis for what God commands us to do. That order is vital. It is crucial that you understand that. And then we're going to see that the indicative comes before the imperative. That's going to take place throughout this section. But I want to make sure you understand it from the very start. Friends, this order is the only way that you can have peace with God. That the indicative comes before the imperative. This order is the only way that you can lastingly live for God. This is more than just semantics. This is more than just eighth grade English. You see, it's your and mine natural mindset to reverse this order. It's natural for you and for me for the imperative to come before the indicative. It's natural for you and me to think, well, if I do these things, then God will be in my debt. He'll owe me. So if I attend church, if I give to charity, if I read the Bible, if I take the sacraments, if I rehearse the prayers, if I'm polite, if I work hard, if I'm better than other people, if I do, then God will say, you're done. You're in. That's your instinct. And if you're observant, that is how every man-made religion is set up. It takes the imperative, what I do, the basis of the indicative, what God does for me. But that's not Christianity. We begin with the indicative. We begin with what God has done. That out of his grace, not because we earned it, but while we were still sinners, God sent his son to do what we never did and to die the death we deserve. That on the cross, what does Jesus say? He says, it is finished. It's done. And that's the basis of the imperative. It is done and now we do. Don't you see how crucial that order is? Because I bet you no Christians or at least so-called Christians who start with the imperative instead of the indicative who start with the command and not start with grace. I bet you know Christians like that. Maybe you are a Christian like that. If you start with a command, you'll end up being a person who is self-righteous, who is condescending, who is rigid, who is impressed with yourself, who is harsh toward others because you haven't first been softened and humbled by the grace of God. Or if you start with a command, you'll become another type of person. You'll become a person who's indifferent and casual toward God. You'll start with a command, it'll be too hard, and so you'll just lower it to some mere empty outward ritual. So you'll check off a few boxes, you'll feel good about yourself and think you're fine while your heart will remain far from God. I bet you know people like that. Maybe that would describe yourself. What happened? What, what has happened here? You've started with a command and not with grace. You have not first been melted by God's grace. So we'll, we'll move on, but let me just ask you a few questions. Are you living for salvation or are you living from salvation? Are you beginning with an imperative, a command, or are you beginning with an indicative, a reality? Are you beginning with what you do 
or what's already been done for you. Oh, it all comes down just to this one word, therefore, how Peter sets up his letter. So Peter continues, therefore, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the first command or the first imperative Peter has for us. So weak and weary Christians can continue to hope in God for their future. Let's talk about how they do that. So another way to think about hope here is what you are trusting in for the future. So for the Christians Peter's writing to, he calls them exiles. Do you think that they have any real prospects in the world? No, they don't. And so Peter doesn't present the object of our hope as some kind of backup plan. Peter doesn't say something like, well, hey, if if your job or if your marriage doesn't end up working out, doesn't end up being all that you want to be, well, you know, maybe you can hope in this. Peter doesn't say, hey, I I know you really like your political party, and that's important. If If it ever falls out of power, well, maybe you can think about this. Peter doesn't say, hey, if you ever fall on rough financial times, I know you guys have nice bank accounts. If you ever, if the bank account ever runs dry, well, then here, here's a nice consolation. No. Peter doesn't give you two chairs to try to sit on at the same time. Peter gives you one chair. Set your hope fully on the grace that, will be, the grace that is to be brought to you. This tells you, believer in Jesus, that grace still awaits you. Grace still awaits you. Christian, the Savior who paid for your sin will one day remove you from sin. We sang it. Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face. What you've begun to experience in part, you will one day experience in full. So let me ask you, when you think about your future, what do you think? What do you think about your future? I'm sure you think about your plans. I'm sure you think about uh, what could go wrong. I'm sure you worry about uncertainties. My friend, why don't you start with the indicative? Why don't you start with what God has already done? If by his grace, God has already saved you from sin, well then, why not trust him for what's ahead tomorrow? Well, Peter clarifies what it looks like to trust God for the future. He says that it looks like preparing your mind for action and being sober-minded. You see that at the beginning of verse 13? That phrase, preparing your mind for action, it literally means to gird up your loins. Now, maybe you've heard that phrase from the Bible before, uh, but what it really refers to is that back in the day, people wore these long gowns. They didn't wear pants. So when they had to fight, when they had to work, when they had to run, you would take all that extra material and you would uh, tuck it up and bound it into your belt so that your legs could move freely. You are girding up your loins. It's, it's a, a physical state of being prepared, prepared for action. Now, Peter might be referring to uh, God's instructions to the Israelites when they were in Egypt in Exodus 12. He's about to deliver them from slavery. They're eating the Passover meal, and he tells them to eat the meal in a certain way. He says to eat it with your loins girded up. Really, he, what he's telling them, you are to have a mindset not settled in Egypt but ready to be on the move because Egypt isn't your home. As spiritual exiles, this earth is not our home. We are to have that mindset being prepared for action. Peter also says to be sober-minded. 
And that means more than just not getting intoxicated, though it doesn't mean less than that. Really, what it means down deep is not to be distracted, to be clear, to be sober-minded is to be focused. Let me ask you, believer in Jesus, do these two traits describe your thought life? Prepared for action and sober-minded, prepared and focused. You know, life beats us up. It's so hard to remain this way. And I look at the world around us. The world wants the opposite for your mind, doesn't it? The world would have you be despairing and distracted, wouldn't it? But if you are prepared and focused, it will help you remember that the, gra- the grace that awaits you. And it will keep you from despairing and being distracted. You don't have to despair. You don't have to distract yourself. Do you remember the character Chicken Little? What did Chicken Little always say? The sky is falling. He's always panicked. He's always despairing. I think a lot of Christians live like that. They live like like Chicken Little Christians. The sky is falling. You don't have to live like that. By fixing your trust in God's grace, Peter keeps discouraged Christians from becoming despairing Christians. I think of last Sunday evening, uh, Joseph from Fieldstone sharing with us uh, about anxiety. He, He made one comment that stuck with me. He said from the time he was something like six years old, he has had a video game console in his house. And it's not to say all video games are bad all the time, but the point that he made is that he has had a quick way to numb and distract his pain rather than facing it. And you can do the same thing by doing this all day, right? Because of God's grace, what Peter is saying that it's possible for discouraged Christians not just to be distracted Christians, that you have a sure future You don't need to despair. You don't need to distract. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, there is a second command, second imperative, and it deals with our obedience. So in light of our salvation, Peter says to be holy as God is holy. We're looking here especially at verses 14 through 16. So like a battery, There is a negative side and a positive side to this second command. The negative side, you might see it in verse 14. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Now, this is an interesting way to put it, isn't it? Again, I can't help but think, if you and I were writing 1 Peter, if this was 1 Steve, (laughs) we'd probably write it differently. I'd probably just write something like, stop cheating on your spouse. Stop getting drunk. Stop being a jerk to people. (laughs) But do you notice that Peter doesn't even talk about actions or behavior here, does he? In verse 14, what does he talk about? He talks about motives and desires. He says, don't be conformed to your former passions. Now, this is something we say a lot because the Bible says it a lot, but your behavior is deeper than you realize. Your behavior comes from your passions. Your behavior comes from your desires, what you love, what you want. Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Peter says that these bad passions come from ignorance. And if you keep reading, it becomes clear that it's ignorance of God, that you have these passions because you haven't met God yet, that you desire these other things because you haven't met the best thing. And you treat good things like they're God things. 
That's idolatry, and, and, and there's always chaos as a result. He says, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You know, I think this could be one reason, maybe, that uh, you can't seem to get over a certain sin pattern in your life. I I don't want to be simplistic here, but maybe just, for instance, you are given to anger. You get frustrated easily. You often stew in bitterness. You find yourself more and more in fits of rage. And maybe you started to recognize this in yourself and you started to tell yourself, I just need to stop being so angry. But my friend, if you leave it just there, you're gonna have a hard time because you can't just look at your behavior. You have to look at your motive. You can't just look at the action. You have to look at your passion. Listen to James 4, 1 to 2. He says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? That you desire and don't have, so you murder? That you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel? So when you get angry, you ask yourself, what am I desiring that I'm not getting? Maybe it could be a good thing, but I would say often it's not. Am I desiring to get my own way? Am I desiring to to maintain my comfort? Am I desiring to be recognized? See, you could apply this to any one of your behavior, any one of your actions. You can look at your motive. You can look at what what it shows you're desiring. These are the roots, right? Spring's coming up. I'm, I'm gearing up for lawn care and I'm gearing up for the weeds, right? If you wanna get rid of weeds, you have to do more than just cut them off at the surface. You have to dig up their roots, This is the same thing that Peter's talking about. Now, the positive side of this second command comes in verses 15 and 16. There's a lot surrounding it. I just want you to look at the command itself. He says to be holy in all your conduct. Now, holiness is more than purity. Holiness is more than to be far from sin, though it's not less than that. Holiness is to be set apart. It's to be distinct. To be holy is to be committed to good and devoted to God. So just as Peter wasn't interested in giving us a partial hope, neither is Peter interested in us having a partial holiness. Now, I'm not the first to observe this, but I think we communicate in the language of partial holiness, maybe without us even knowing. I think about how we talk about church. We talk about church, what we do on Sunday mornings. Why is it so often the case that we only label music as worship? Why do we do that? We love love music. We do worship God through singing. But don't you also worship God by attentively listening to his word? Don't you also worship God by praying to him? Don't you also worship God by responding to his word in obedience? Oh, worship and holiness extend far beyond just music. They extend, Peter says, to all your conduct. So let's just just stew in this for a minute. Let's reflect on this. I want to tease this out. Be holy in all your conduct. So you're going to go to bed tonight. You're going to wake up tomorrow, Monday. You had to work. You'll head to school. When you go tomorrow, I want you to think, how can I be holy in all my conduct when I go to work And when I go to school, is it maybe in how I talk to other people? Is that how you can be holy in all your conduct? Is it maybe in how you spend your time? You don't waste a bunch of it. Is it maybe in your attitude? 
Is it maybe in how you strive to do excellent work? We are to be holy in all our conduct. Think about this. It actually ironically came up in Sunday school. How about how can you be holy when you drive your car? (laughs) What do you listen to in the car? You know, we have on Spotify a West Creek music playlist. Maybe you can listen to the songs that we sing. Or maybe you could just listen to nothing. Maybe you could spend time praying and being, just being quiet. You could be holy in the car by obeying the traffic laws. Maybe you could be holy in the car by not cursing at the guy in front of you who doesn't immediately respond to the green light. <laughs> now, holiness extends to more than just church, but I want you to think about this. You're to be holy in all your conduct. You are to be holy when you come here to church. It's not just the time to relax, though it is the time to receive and to rehearse the gospel. It's also time to give. How can you be holy here when you gather with other Christians? You know, Jesus says that our love for one another should be distinct to the world. So could you be holy in all your conduct here through an act of service? Could you be holy in your conduct here in being willing to serve the least of these, even our children? Could you be holy in your conduct here by being willing to have a difficult but loving conversation maybe with someone who you you disagree with? Could you be holy in your conduct here by extending forgiveness to someone? Be holy in all your conduct. I'm gonna keep going. How can you be holy in all your conduct at the dinner table? How can you be distinct from the world, far from sin, committed to good, devoted to God at the dinner table? Maybe you, maybe you put your phone away and you actually look at people. Maybe you actually engage in conversation. Maybe you pray like you really mean it before, the, before you eat. Maybe you ask good questions. Maybe you give good answers. Maybe you're holding all your conduct at the dinner table because you invite a friend or a neighbor to join you who often doesn't have people to eat with. You know, I remember hearing one pastor tell a story about how he talked to a waitress at a restaurant on a Sunday afternoon, and he was trying to see her as a person. And so he tried to engage her in conversation. So he asked, like, how are you doing today? And she responded, oh, just fantastic. It's Sunday, worst day of the week to work. Why is that? He said, well, all these Christians coming in for lunch after church. You see that table over there? They just gave me this. No tip. It was a four spiritual laws gospel tract. She said, this is great and all, but it's not gonna feed my kids. Christians, be holy in all your conduct, even in how you tip at a restaurant. So don't you see, if we no longer desire the things we used to desire and now we are holy in everything we do, won't we stick out to the world? Won't we be the salt and light that Jesus intended us to be? If by God's grace, we follow the commands we've been given so far here in 1 Peter, we will be heavenly minded Christians who do much earthly good. Now, before we move on, I want to address a possible misunderstanding, especially if you don't consider yourself a Christian. So maybe what you think we do at church each Sunday is just tell some people some guidelines, maybe give them some good advice for how to live. And you hear all of what we've been saying. You say, sure, this sounds good. Be thoughtful about everything you do. Like, Be a good person in all of life. That's a message I can get on board with. Now, if you're thinking like that, I want you to hold on for a second because Peter says to be holy as God is holy. Your problem is the same as mine, that you haven't been holy as God has been holy. None of us have. 
And for the Christians Peter's writing to, Peter describes what he calls their former way of life. So he's saying that they have changed. So he's saying that the way of life that's natural to you, that's natural to me, is not to know God, is not to desire God, and not to be holy like God. Romans 3.23 puts it like this, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So I want you to understand something, friend, that to be holy in all your conduct takes more than self-improvement. This command of God starts with the grace of God. Formerly, Christians were ignorant. We had wayward desires. What made the difference? Look at the beginning of verse 15. God called us. That's who made the difference. He brought us to life. He made himself known to us through the gospel of his son. We have met him and he has changed our hearts. Now we desire him more than we desire anything else. And through his son's holy life and sacrificial death, now we are his children. So friend, I want you to, miss, I want you to understand something. Christians don't strive to be holy in order to become children of God. Christians strive to be holy because we already are children of God. The grace of God empowers the command from God. The indicative comes before the imperative. I want us to see this one more time. The third command or imperative deals with our pursuit. Okay, here we're looking at verses 17 through 21. And the command comes at the end of verse 17. It goes like this. Peter says to conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, what does that mean? Well, what comes right before it in that verse might help us. Verse 17 begins, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each person's deeds. This tells you that you live all of your life under God's watchful gaze. All of your life. All of your conduct is before the face of God. And God cares about all of it. And it tells you that you don't just relate to God as judge, but if you trust in Christ, you now relate to God as father. So to conduct yourself with fear is to remember that you live all of life coram Deo, a Latin phrase that means before the face of God. To conduct yourself with fear of God is not to run away from God. Because remember earlier in chapter one, Peter says that these Christians love Jesus though they haven't seen him, that these Christians have inexpressible joy in Jesus. So to fear God then must be compatible with a love for him. So it is not for God, it, it, to fear God is for God to be your all-consuming passion and delight. It's not running away from God, it's wanting to be close to God and to live for him. We read a book together uh, a couple years ago. Uh, the author of it, uh, Elliot Clark, he explains it like this. You know you fear someone when you desire their approval and live for their praise. That's how you know you fear someone, when you desire their approval and live for their praise. The Christian Peter's writing to, they are spiritually homeless in the world. He calls them exiles. In other words, they don't have the world's approval. Maybe you're noticing that about yourself recently as well, about Christians generally, that we don't have the world's approval. So the question for you is the same question for them. Will you compromise and adapt in order to pursue the world's approval? 
Or will you live with a fear of God? Will you live to please him, not the world? Elliot Clark continues, he says this, you know, we just want people to like us. We want people to think we're smart. We want people to think we're contemporary and hip and tolerant and progressive and fun and approving. We want to please people and we want them to approve of us. So we withhold the truth for the sake of being accepted. We nurture relationships with unbelievers for years without broaching the subject of Christ. Why? To please people. We often reason that these people-pleasing efforts are for the sake of future gospel opportunities, but in reality, we're often just fearing others instead of fearing God. So how can you pursue a life that is pleasing to God when losing out on the world's approval is painful? No one likes being rejected. How can you pursue a life that's pleasing to God when losing out on the world's approval hurts. Well, you can do this because you can know three things. What it all comes down to, you can, put, you can put up with the world's frowns because you have God's smile. This is what Peter says as he continues after verse 17. You can pursue a life to please God, even though losing out on the uh, approval of the world is painful, because you know three things are true about you. One, that you have been freed. Two, that you have been purchased. And three, that you are not an afterthought. One, you have been freed. Peter says, knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. This word ransom is the language of liberation, to purchase out of slavery, So this verse tells you that you and I were born into slavery to sin. This verse tells you that you and I were born into a way of life that's going nowhere. He calls it futile. By nature, what you and I pursue is futile, empty, meaningless. This is a central word in the wisdom books in the Bible that start with Job and end in Ecclesiastes. I've heard this explained from someone else. In Job, there's a rich man who loses everything and he finds out God is enough. In Ecclesiastes, there's a rich man who gains everything and he finds out it's empty. You and I pursue a way of life that is futile. 1 Peter 1.18 tells you that when Jesus died for, for you on the cross, that he died for more than just your forgiveness. He died for your freedom. That when Jesus died for you on the cross, he died for more than just to cancel your debts. He died to break off the chains. That when Jesus died for you on the cross, he died for more than just to wipe the slate clean. He died to make you new. Christian, you don't face the prospect of living a life to please God while you are still in chains and enslaved to sin. You know, a lot of Christians mistakenly live like the people in Galveston, Texas in June of 1865. If you know your American history, you know that in September of 1862, President Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. 
This declared all slaves in the Confederate states to be free. But just because Lincoln proclaimed that didn't mean all the states enforced that. So even after Robert E. Lee surrendered the Confederacy, there were still people enslaved in Texas. That is until June 19th, 1865 when Major General Gordon Granger arrived in Galveston to set the slaves free. So for almost three years, freedom was declared. And even a little while, victory was won. But people still lived in chains because they didn't know. Christian, you don't have to pursue a life that pleases God with chains on. You have been freed You can pursue a life pleasing to God because you can know that you have been purchased. You have been purchased. Peter continues, you are ransomed, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You have been purchased. Maybe you know the story of Jean Valjean from Les Miserables, the novel by Victor Hugo or the play or the musical. At the beginning of the story, Valjean is fresh out of jail for stealing bread for his family. He's fresh out of jail. He has no work. He has no place to stay. So he finds refuge at a church. The bishop of the church takes him in. And at night, he's roaming around the church and he stumbles upon the church's silverware. Temptation overcomes him. He starts to stuff the silverware into his bag, but the bishop finds him. And when confronted, Valjean strikes the bishop and he flees. The next day, police catch Valjean. They bring him back to the church, bring him back to the bishop. And they ask the bishop, they tell him, this man claims that you gave him this silverware. And there's this dramatic pause. The bishop approaches Valjean. He says, I'm very angry at you. Jean Valjean. Why didn't you take the two silver stick candles also? They're the most valuable things that we have. I gave them to you. They're worth over 2,000 francs. Why would you leave them here? Officer, this has been a misunderstanding. Set this man go. And he did. The police leave, and then it's just Valjean and the bishop. Valjean asks him, why are you doing this? The bishop tells him, With this silver, I've bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred, and now I give you back to God. Valjean then went on to to use his life to show that same grace that was given to him. So for Valjean, grace empowered the command. You see, when you see that you are just like Valjean, That you stand before God and you know that you are guilty. You know you have no hope. That you know full well that you have sinned against him. That you have struck him. But then God gives you mercy. And God even pays for your offense. Not just with two silver candlesticks, but with the blood of his own pure and precious son. How much more would that ransom your life for God? 1 Corinthians 6.20, you are not your own, but you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. How can you pursue a life that pleases God when the world's disapproval is so painful? Well, you can know this third truth. You can know that you are not an afterthought. 
Verse 20 says, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter tells these Christians that this was God's plan all along. All along, it was God's plan to send his son to reconcile sinners to himself. This was no afterthought. This was no shoddily thrown together project. God has planned to give his grace through his son, even before the foundation of the world. You want to learn more about this? Read Ephesians 1, verses 4 to 5 this afternoon. Sweet, sweet verses to meditate on. So friend, if you have come to Jesus, and trust him to forgive you of your sin, what he has done to forgive you from your sin and to set you free from sin, if you now aim to follow Jesus and to pursue a life that's pleasing to him that might seem overwhelming. But what Peter tells you here is that you can do this because you have been freed, you have been purchased, and you are not an afterthought. You can hold on to these truths when the world's disapproval would be so painful. I I just, as we close, imagine trying to pursue a life that's pleasing to God without already having the grace of God. This would mean that you would have to break off your own chains. This would mean that you would have to pay off the penalty of your sin yourself. This would mean that you would have to work and try to get God to notice you. This would mean that this is a basketball hoop at an infinite height against an invincible opposition. But the good news is that the indicative comes before the imperative that Jesus has broken the chains, that Jesus has paid the ransom, that Jesus loved us first. And now we trust in him for our future. We obey him in all our lives and we pursue a life that is pleasing to him. Let's pray. Lord, oh, oh how great a debtor Every day we are to grace. Would your goodness bind our wandering hearts to you? Would we remember your grace each day and would that empower us to hope in you, to live for you in all of our conduct and to live to please you and not just the world? Would you shine through us and strengthen us Remind us of your grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.